of your pew Bibles. So Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. Uh, and I will read all 22 verses of that chapter for us. And uh, since this is a reading of God's word, let's all stand for, uh, to hear from his word. Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as of the day of a festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as a sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. Now we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself 
no rest. Your eyes, no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt with thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb and the children their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival my day, the day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my, my enemy destroyed. This reads the word of God. You may be seated. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath burns towards you like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes and to bear to you to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hands that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. This reads a passage from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For those of you who don't know, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian in the early 1700s during the time of the American colonies. And if you ever take some time to research his life, you will see that Jonathan Edwards was a preacher who overwhelmingly delighted in God's grace, and he often preached on the abundance of God's mercy. For example, some notable sermons of Edwards that I have enjoyed in the past are titled, The Excellency of Christ, or Heaven, a Place of Love, or Charity and Its Fruits. In fact, even if you take a look at our book of the quarter, uh, this quarter, it's, it's a book in which Edwards writes a series of sermons extolling the supernatural wonders of God's love. But as you can tell in this sermon, in this sermon, Jonathan Edwards' focus here was on something else. Here, he wanted to preach on the cauldron of God's wrath and the force of his anger towards sinners. And as you can tell, even in just this short excerpt that I've read to you, his words were so piercing, his imagery so vivid, that it was said that the first time Edwards gave this sermon, he did not even get a chance to complete it. The audience was so broken down in tears over this message that the sobs were just too loud to preach over. It was said that sorrow gripped the audience's heart so much that some fainted, some so distressed that they had to cling on to the pillars of the church just to keep them from collapsing. 
It was a side of God that they were not used to hearing and that they had never confronted before. In preaching classes, we are always taught that even on some of those dark topics or those dark passages of judgment, we are always taught that even in those messages that we should always include a message of hope. But Jonathan Edwards in this sermon had no regard for that rule because he knew his audience. He knew his congregation knew the gospel. He knew they could articulate it. He knew that they could point directly to all the right verses in their Bibles. The problem he had with his audience was getting them to actually seek the gospel, to actually want it in their hearts. And so this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was his attempt to do so. And in a lot of ways, I see our chapter before us today, Lamentations chapter 2, as the prophet Jeremiah's own version of his sinners in the hands of an angry God. In this chapter, if you cannot already tell, Jeremiah laments over the full depths of God's anger. The nation of Judah has continued in sin far too long, and now they face the full brunt of God's wrath. And as Jeremiah surveys that scene, he leaves no corner of God's anger unturned. He leaves no detail out, and he describes it to its utmost fullest. But he does not talk about God's anger so that he can charge God with injustice. He does not do so because he is complaining about it or even questioning God. As we study this chapter together, we will see that Jeremiah writes about God's anger because he knows that it is through understanding and lamenting over God's anger that we can come back to God himself. And he hopes that the nation of Judah will see this too. Since some of you were not here when I uh, first began this study of Lamentations last month, uh, to give you just a brief context, the book of Lamentations is written around 586 BC by the prophet Jeremiah. And this writing occurs right after the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah have been taken captivity, into captivity and ransacked by the Babylonians. And this is not a small ordeal. This captivity by the Babylonians still ranks in history as one of the most raw and gruesome images of human suffering. The temple of God is torn to pieces, and the citizens of Judah endured a nationwide famine, kidnapping, slavery, and destruction. And the prophet Jeremiah is left behind to witness and survey this suffering. And as he does so, as he processes his emotions, he writes a series of five poems that make up this book of Lamentations. And earlier in chapter one, Jeremiah recognizes that this pain and suffering is actually deserved. As he begins his laments, he recognizes that this is because the consequences of Judah's sins are finally being met by God's righteous judgment. And at the end of that chapter, at the end of Lamentations chapter one, Jeremiah slowly begins to see that if he wants to get deliverance from this suffering, that it will come from the Lord himself. Unfortunately, as we take a look at this next chapter, that whatever momentum he had built up in that first chapter does not carry over in to chapter two. In chapter one, he saw God as a judge, but now in chapter two, as we will see, now God feels like an enemy. Instead of confronting the consequences of their own sins, now they must deal with God's anger. And Jeremiah now has to process that. But that's oftentimes the pattern of lament and grief. 
Lament and grief are never linear. They never progress in a straight line or a particular trajectory. Lament has its highs, it has its lows. Suffering has its peaks, it has its valleys. And this chapter, chapter two, is one of those valleys. But even in these valleys, as we study this together, I think we will see that God is still real, that he is with us, and that all his attributes will work towards his glory, even his anger. And so, as we study Lamentations chapter 2 today, I want us to see three lessons about God's anger. Three lessons about God's anger. The first lesson about God's anger is that God's anger is powerful. God's anger is powerful. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Lord's anger is immediately introduced. And in verses 1 through 3, I want us to see the totality of God's anger. Verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Jerusalem here is referred to as the daughter of Zion, indicating that she was once the chosen and beloved of the Lord, who has now been brought under his wrath. And Jeremiah uses this metaphor of a cloud to indicate that God's anger has now completely surrounded the people of Judah. It's casting over them, and they cannot escape it. And verse 2 says, he has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, mercy is seen as a common attribute of God. It is favored, constantly shown to his people, even at times when they do not deserve it. But now, this verse says that that mercy is exhausted. No more. The wells of mercy are, are empty, so to speak. And because of this lack of mercy, now all the habitations of Jacob are swallowed up. And if, you, and if you take a look and you look at the Hebrew word for habitations, a slightly more accurate translation for this word is actually pastures. And so I believe this is a, la- a reference to all the land of Israel. Part of what made Israel so desirable and so appealing to others was that its land was fertile. They were, for the most part, a very prosperous country, and they always enjoyed a healthy yield of crops. But the Babylonians have burnt that all up. It's completely decimated. Anything they could have used for food or survived on is completely exterminated. Verse 3 reads, He has cut down in his fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of his enemy. Not only is God's anger like a cloud, not only has it touched all the land, but now we also see it has removed any sort of strength Israel has. Any army that they could have taken pride in is now gone. And when it says that God has withdrawn his right hand, it means that any sort of help or any sort of support that Israel could have once relied on is now gone. God has chosen to give Judah up to its enemies. In just these three verses, we see the completeness of God's anger, meaning God's anger is all-encompassing. You cannot run from his anger. You cannot hide from his anger. You cannot hope to find a corner that he has accidentally glanced over. You cannot hope to stand up to his anger. And then next in our study, in verses 4 and 5, we will see what God appears like in his anger. It is said in these verses, in verses 4 and 5, that he, God, is like an enemy. And that's a key phrase to focus on. And there's a specific nuance or detail that I want to point out in this verse. It's not that God is an enemy, but that he is like an enemy. 
Meaning that God in his anger never actually sets himself against us. He may be angry with us, but he never actually becomes our foe or our enemy. However, sometimes when you are under the anger of God, it can be so consuming, so powerful, that from your perspective, he will appear or seem like an enemy to you. In God's anger, nothing has changed relationally, but to us, it will feel sometimes like he is indeed not on our side. And this is because Judah's sin is so severe, so prolonged, so heinous, that it warrants strict discipline. And the most natural illustration uh, to describe this here, I think, is one of a parent. I'm sure we have all experienced moments in our lives where we have found ourselves under the discipline of our parents. But there are rare occasions when sometimes a child does something really bad. And I mean something really, really bad. Almost unspeakably bad. And the parents know that they need to bring down strong discipline for their child to understand just how severe their wrongdoing is. And so oftentimes when a child is receiving that discipline, their discipline needs to be so sharp that it does not feel like the child has that loving communion with their parent anymore. However, the reality is the child-parent relationship has not changed. It does not change the fact that the person bringing down discipline is still your mom or your dad. The parent still cares for the child. The child can still call out to their parent as mom or dad, and they will still respond because they are still indeed mom and dad. But sometimes they need to bring down difficult discipline, so difficult that from the child's point of view, it may seem like that the parent is no longer on their side. And that is what we see unfolding here. Israel's sin is so great, so heinous, that it must be met with God's holy anger. And so while it is a deserved consequence, and while God's love for them has not changed, in the moment, it seems like from their eyes that God is like an enemy to them. And later on in verse 8, reveals that also, not only does God appear like an enemy to them, but that this verse 8 reveals that this destruction was also planned by God. Jeremiah writes in verse 8 that the Lord had determined to lay to ruins. He has stretched out the measuring line. The picture I have in my mind here when I read this verse is like an architect with his blueprints And he's standing before the city of Jerusalem and he pulls out his measuring tapes and he measures exactly how long and how wide the city is. And he says, that plot of land, yes, exactly that entire plot of land, that is what I'm going to destroy. In other words, this destruction was completely set in God's preconceived plans. And in his preconceived destruction, in verse nine, we see that God has shattered the walls of the city. The gates have sunken into the ground, meaning the city's means for protection are now completely shattered. They have no hope for physical defense. They are left exposed for their enemies to override them. Not only that, but their prophets, they can try to look for visions and revelation. They can try to seek help from God, but they will not find any from the Lord. God has cut himself off from them. Basically, if you were to step into Jerusalem, Everywhere you look within the city, the the destruction is so potent and so deadly that you can only say it was done by an angry God. 
Sometimes when we study scripture, we unearth truths that can seem like difficult pills to swallow. And this idea of God being angry is one of them. You know, typically we sing songs about God's grace, God's mercy, his love, or his salvation. But I do not think I know a single worship song that talks about God's anger. And believe me, as hard as it is to go through a text like this, it is even harder for me to preach through something like this. But this is what the text says, and this is what I think is an appropriate interpretation of it. And when we study who God is, we have to take all his attributes together. We cannot gloss over ones we do not like or difficult ones to confront. We have to address each one head on, even one like this. But as we think about God's anger, I want you to consider again the reason behind this lament. These laments of God's anger are coming out ultimately because Jerusalem has sinned. And this is what separates God's anger from what we may usually think about anger. When we think about anger, we think of someone who is hot-tempered, red-headed, and impatient. Someone who is prone to mood swings and changing emotions. Someone who no one wants to be around. In fact, when you are in a room and you see someone getting angry, you see someone throwing a tantrum, your first thought probably is that that person does not know Jesus. But God's anger, different from what we may commonly think of about anger or imagine about anger, is a righteous anger. Because the reason for God's anger is that there is sin in this world. As one Christian author defines it, anger, in a good sense, or in a righteous sense, is a natural and emotional reaction to a perceived moral injustice. It is a natural and emotional reaction to a perceived moral injustice. And now just take that definition and think about how it relates to God. In chapter 1, we had already established that God is a righteous and perfect judge. And And as that judge, he is the ultimate standard for moral injustice. And so, when God is angry, you know that he is always in the right, and you know it is always directed at sin. God does not get angry because he has pet peeves. God does not get angry because someone has cut him off on the road this morning. God does not get angry because he has a child that refuses to go to bed at a reasonable time. God's anger exists because sin is that bad, and God is that holy. God's anger exists because sin is that bad and God is that holy. And so as powerful and as harsh as God's anger was towards Jerusalem in Lamentations, understand that it was completely warranted because Jerusalem's sins were just that awful. As Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 through 7 read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As Moses testifies here, God is slow to anger. God had given his people many chances before the Babylonian invasion. He had shown to them steadfast love and faithfulness throughout And it was only until centuries and centuries of patient endurance and constant rejection that God had to finally bring down his anger. As a Puritan preacher once said, if you are going to be angry and not sin, 
be angry at sin. And believe me, God's people were in sin. And so God's anger is embedded in his intangible goodness and mercy. It arises slowly, and when it arises, his anger is an aspect of his moral goodness. God attacks only what is truly evil. He does great good to all, and only after the insult of endless ingratitude and rebellion does God cut off evil with his anger. And so, as you think and you consider these images of God's anger in destroying Jerusalem physically, in God putting himself as an adversary, I want you to examine yourself and ask yourself a few questions as well. Do I take my sin seriously? Do I tremble at the thought of God's holiness? Do I recognize that the greatest danger in my life is nothing that this world will throw my way but coming under the judgment of God? Does my worship flow out of a pure and genuine heart rather than an external adorning of lip service and false godliness? If you cannot answer these questions out of love, I tell you that you need to check your hearts and address what may be blocking you because the consequences of persistent sin are just that swift. That's the first lesson we see about God's anger. God's anger is powerful. The second lesson we'll see about God's anger is that God's anger produces sorrow. So we've seen God's anger is powerful. The next we will see is that God's anger produces sorrow. And we see that in verses 11 through 17. Verses 11 through 17. The next verse, verse 11, the speaker shifts now to the first person. Now Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of himself. And he talks about how his eyes are spent with weeping. I'm sure we've all had those times in our lives where we have been so spent with tears, our, our tear ducts just so completely evaporated that it just hurts to open our eyes. And that's what I picture here is that he is just so spent, so exhausted that it's not because he can't cry anymore, but it's that his, just, his tear ducts are just dry. There's no more water for him to cry. And that's what I picture here. Then later on, he talks about his inner being. He says his stomach churns and bile is poured out to the ground. And these kinds of images are, are used to represent the innermost being of his emotions. They're being poured out to the ground. And, or in other words, I think what he's saying here is that he's being brought completely low in sadness. When I first began the study, I mentioned briefly how Jeremiah is called by many the weeping prophet. And I think these verses are a clear picture of why he has that nickname. Then verse 12 is just an image of complete despair. The citizens of the city are using the very last breaths of their body to cry out for food and for drink. And finally, verse 13 caps off this sorrow. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as a sea. Who can heal you? There is nothing Jeremiah can compare to or say to Jerusalem to try to alleviate or try to reduce the pain they are going through. Their sorrow is so great that he cannot think of, any, that he cannot think of anything this world can offer to comfort them. 
And so he asks that final question, not what can comfort you or what can heal you, but he asks that final question, who can heal you? And Jeremiah in this question reveals the essence of his sorrow. This is a rhetorical question. Jeremiah knows the only answer is that only God can heal them, but God has become like an enemy. In Judah's sin, they have offended and separated themselves from God. And this is the common theme, tying all these images of sorrow together. This sorrow is born because God is now completely absent from his people. This is the essence of their grief. God is no longer intervening for them. Their judgment had come because the people were not taking their sins that seriously anymore. And this is similar to us today. In the midst of the world we live in, we fall into the trap of always thinking that God isn't that holy and that I'm doing pretty good. God isn't that holy and that I'm doing pretty good. And oftentimes, in God's judgment and discipline, his intention is to create a sorrow in us, to recognize that that is indeed not true, and for us to recognize that our sin is completely devastating. That we have not only suffered the consequences of our sin, but God creates sorrow in us to lament over the fact that we are now under the anger of God. It recognizes that the most agonizing result of our sin is that we have distanced ourselves from a creator who loves us dearly. It is not a sorrow that is caught up in trying to justify its sin or simply caught up in the worldly effects of its sin. It's not a sorrow that focuses on the loss or sin it's brought about or how others' opinions may, of us may have changed because of our sin. But it is a sorrow that truly mourns the fact that God, who was once a friend, now indeed appears to be like an enemy because of what we have done. That we have failed God in our holiness. And if we truly have a right view of God and a hatred of sin, like Jeremiah, we begin to feel like what it is like to be brought completely low in our sorrow, to be brought to the point where our stomach is churning and bile is poured out. And we begin to weep and regret over what we have done, and we recognize how far we have set ourselves from God. A true Christian who recognizes that they are under God's anger for their sin will experience heartbreaking remorse because they realize that they have an offended, an infinitely loving father who only desires the best for them. But sometimes that remorse or that sorrow that is produced is the blunt reality check we need to understand that we need to run back to God. And that leads me to my third point. My third point, God's anger has a solution. So we've seen that God's anger is powerful. God's anger produces sorrow. But thirdly, we see God's anger has a solution. And we see that in verses 18 through 22. We've seen God, the power of God's anger, but we see that his anger, we see that his anger is so powerful that it produces sorrow. But Lamentations chapter 2 does not leave us there. It provides us with a glimmer of hope. God's anger does have a solution. And that solution is to come back to God himself. In verse 18, he urges his people to cry out to the Lord to let tears stream down like a torrent day and night and to cry incessantly to the point where they have no rest. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying is that they need to seek the Lord and come back to him in prayer. They are to take their sorrows and sufferings and bring them before the Lord. And verse 19 paints a more vivid picture of this. They are to pour out their heart like water before the presence of the Lord. And this is a powerful comparison for what their prayers should look like. Everything that is on their hearts, everything that has burdened them, must be uncovered, expressed, and addressed to the Lord. 
It goes on to say, lift your hands for the lives of your children. And lifting your hands is a common symbol for surrendering yourself to the Lord in prayer. So what uh, the author is saying here is that you do not only just pray about your woes. Pray also, lift up intercessions for the sake of your children. Do this so that the next generation is able to survive and see better days beyond this exile. And then we see those prayers put into practice, or we see those prayers exemplified in verses 20 through 22. The poet cries out, look, O Lord, and see. He wants God to give attention and consider the people of Jerusalem once again. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions. The first question, with whom have you dealt with thus? Jerusalem wants God's delight and God's joy and objects of his unconditional love. Wonders if there's any people group throughout the course of history who has endured more suffering than she has. Then two more questions are rattled off. Should the women eat the fruit of their womb, the children their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? These here are pictures of the boundaries of cruel punishment. And from a human perspective, this cannot get any worse. And the obvious answer to all these rhetorical questions is no. No one has suffered like this. And so I think all these questions are a begging for God to have mercy once again. And finally, verse 22 caps off this prayer of lament with comparison to a religious feast. Similar to how a priest summons a religious festival, so God has also summoned this destruction of Jerusalem. And no one is able to escape those terrors. No one is able to survive. Everyone falls victim. Verse 19 says to pour out your heart like water. In verses 20 through 22, the author does just that in prayer. He expresses in full detail every evil they have endured so that the Lord would intercede. And the hope of Jeremiah's prayer here is that by lifting up their sufferings to the Lord and asking God to see it, is that hopefully God will relent. That through expressing their woes, that they can appeal once again to God's mercy and put an end to the suffering. Jeremiah knows that despite God's anger, God is still never too far for him to not listen. God's anger is powerful. It does produce sorrow. But understand that that anger still does not have the final say. God does these things with the goal that we would come back to him. The solution to God's anger is to seek the Lord once again. And that's how Jeremiah ends his mourning as as well. By coming to the Lord humbly in prayer. Perhaps you are in a season of despair. Perhaps similar to Jerusalem. You know you have persisted in sin for a while. And you know full well right now that you are facing the consequences of it. Perhaps you feel sorrow indeed every day. Because it feels like God has completely abandoned you. And you are helpless on what to do about it. Consider that as absent as God may seem to him. Seem to you. You can still find God if you choose to seek him. In fact, his anger is meant for you to run back to him. Maybe tonight is a night you go before him in prayer and lay out all your sufferings and all your anguish before him and admit that he has done this and that he is in the right. And once again, ask God to restore his mercy back to you. And I want you to take a a look again at verse 20. And again, similar to chapter one, the key phrase here is look, O Lord, and see. Once again, we see that the poet recognizes that the solution for God's anger is for God to intervene once again, for God to look and see. 
Or in other words, being rescued from God's anger comes from God himself. And while all Jeremiah could do on this side of the cross was lift up his prayers to the Lord and hope that God would rescue, on the side of the cross that we live in, we do have full assurance that God will indeed rescue us. And that's found again in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his fully divine nature, humbly came onto this earth to take on the form of a man and live the sinless life that no man could ever hope to do. And yet Jesus still knew that his one mission on this earth was to go on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. And while he was on that cross, he faced full-on, head-on, the anger of God. He knew what it was like to be swallowed up without mercy, to feel laid to waste by all the ruins of our own sins. And as Jesus endured this anger, he became what Isaiah prophesied to be, the man of sorrows, feeling sorrow unto the point of death, sorrow to the point where he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet three days after his death, Jesus rises again, conquering sin and sorrow once and for all. Jesus has satisfied God's anger towards sin once and for all for those who would believe in him. He has endured sorrow so that we will never have to face that final sorrow of judgment. Because God now sees Jesus' righteousness in his life in place of ours. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on, on our behalf so that we can run to the Lord and seek him in all our trials. He is the one mediating for us so that we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. So again, I plead with you, if you do not have faith in Christ, come to him. Understand that similar to Jerusalem, there too will come a reckoning for your sins as well. That God will deal with your sins according to his holiness and his hatred towards sin. But understand that when you believe and trust your life fully unto Christ, you can be delivered. Jesus did not just die to save you from your sins. He died to save you from God. In chapter 1, we learn the cause of lament. We lament because of the results of sin and righteousness of God. In this chapter, chapter 2, though, we see the purpose of lament. And again, this is an acrostic poem. And so this whole chapter, from A to Z, is a lament over the full completeness of God's anger. From seeing its impact, reflecting over its sorrow, to praying in complete desperation. But it is as Jeremiah works through this entire process of grief that he is able to recognize once again that the satisfaction of God's anger comes through appealing to God himself. And that is the purpose of his lament. Lament brings us back to God. Lamenting pours out our woes at the feet of the Lord and recognizes that God does hear our laments and that they are not meaningless. And as we see here in chapter 2, lament can talk to God directly about any kind of pain and suffering, even when he is the one inflicting it himself. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our, our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of renewing our confidence in God. And we know our confidence is sure because we have seen the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's because of Christ that there is no sorrow he cannot redeem, no anger that is so strong his death cannot appease, no pain that he cannot transform into joy. Earlier I talked about how Jonathan Edwards sinners in, earlier I talked about Jonathan Edwards sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and how Edwards delivered this sermon to get his audience to seek the Lord once again. And well, short answer is that it worked. 
If you follow the course of American history, it was this sermon delivered on July 7th, 1741, that launched what many call in American history the first great awakening. It was one of the largest religious revitalizations America has ever seen. Congregations all over America found their love for God once again. Pews began packing. Evangelism swept over the colonies. The gospel traveled throughout the lands of America. And it was because so many Americans that day came under the full conviction of God's anger and understood that to escape it, they needed to come back to him. As bizarre as this might sound, yes, there is goodness at the end of the tunnel of God's anger. Yes, God is an angry God, but he is also a kind God, a merciful God, a compassionate God, a holy God, and a just God. And it's only when all of these attributes of God come together that the gospel can truly show itself to be real. You can only see how amazing grace really is when you understand how real God's judgment is. You can only see how amazing grace really is when you understand how real God's judgment is. And lament, lament is a process that brings us to recognize that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all your attributes and the sum of your character. And so we come before you this morning with sorrow over our sins, sorrow over how we have distanced ourselves from you. And so like Jeremiah, we pour out our hearts to you. And we ask, we ask that we would come to you through your son, that we may know you once again, that may, we may experience the joy of fellowship with you once again, and that we can trust fully in the work of Christ. So we lift all these in your son's name. We pray. Amen.